Hello, you're listening to the first audio news programme from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. I'm Derek Thorne and in this new series of programmes we'll be bringing you interviews and comments from top London School researchers. Coming up, the landmark study looking at alcohol consumption in Russian men and why health politics needs to take a history lesson. First, though, on July the 1st, England joined many other European countries by banning smoking in enclosed public places. However, according to one London school researcher, the promotion of oral tobacco in some of these countries could lead to people staying addicted to cigarettes when they might otherwise quit. I got more from Martin McKee, who is Professor of European Public Health at the school. In Sweden, for many years, it's been possible to buy oral tobacco, tobacco in the form of tea bags that you put underneath your tongue. And uh, many people have argued that this is safer than smoking, which it undoubtedly is. It certainly doesn't cause the lung cancer associated with smoking. But the rest of the European Union have uh, taken the view that this is not a safe product. There's very clear evidence that it's associated, for example, with an increase in cancer of the pancreas. And as a result, they have banned it in the rest of the EU. Well, we now see a very concerted effort by some of the cigarette manufacturers to manufacture and sell this product across the European Union to make it legal. We've been rather concerned about this. They are uh, pushing this idea as a way of reducing harm associated with smoking. But this is not a harmless product. More importantly, we've been asking why the tobacco industry have been trying to promote this so heavily. And it is linked to the bans that we're seeing in smoking in public places. Clearly, people who are smokers who are in a bar or a restaurant do find it inconvenient to go outside into the rain or into the cold uh, to smoke. We know that they're likely to use the opportunity of a smoking ban to quit. And uh, the industry, we believe, is looking at ways of maintaining their addiction in these smoke-free areas with, uh, so that they continue to smoke when they're at home and when they're outdoors and so on. Now, there is a perfectly good alternative for people who are addicted to nicotine and uh, who want to quit smoking, and that is nicotine replacement therapy in the form of patches or chewing gum. And is that something that's thought to be safer then? That is much safer. There's, uh, it's not associated with the uh, cancer-producing properties that are identified with uh, the oral tobacco, the SNUS product. Um, But the disadvantage from the tobacco industry's point of view is that nicotine replacement therapy helps people to wean themselves off the addiction, whereas if they continue to to, to choose SNUS, they will remain addicted. What is actually going to be happening then in Europe and possibly in the UK? We have the bans now being introduced in many parts of Europe. There are still a few countries that are holding out, like Germany and Austria, for example, but we expect that that will only be a matter of time. We hope that that will encourage many of those people who do smoke to give up. It will have the enormous benefit of protecting people from uh, who do not smoke from exposure to other people's smoke. And this should not be underestimated. Secondhand smoke is very dangerous. Um, people are not so much uh, inhaling the smoke that other people are breathing out, but they're more greatly damaged by the smoke from cigarettes smouldering in ashtrays. And and there is evidence for this, is there? There is very interesting evidence because the tobacco industry have known about this for decades. Uh, We showed in a paper in The Lancet a number of years ago that a leading tobacco company had a secret testing plant in Germany. It ran this at arm's length through a Swiss subsidiary and uh, with all of the evidence being sent 
to the private address of a Swedish professor of public health. And what this showed was that the cigarettes that were smouldering, which were burning at a much lower temperature than ones that were being actively inhaled, were producing much more dangerous chemicals. Now, maybe I could give an example to illustrate why this is so dangerous. If we think about domestic garden rubbish that is being burnt in a bonfire. It burns at low temperature and produces lots of toxic substances like uh, volatile organochlorines, like dioxins and things like that, which is why we have them, the, the, these things taken away to high temperature incinerators. And by burning them in high temperature incinerators, uh, it is actually much safer. Uh, that's the equivalent of uh, having a uh, tobacco being smoked actively where you're sucking air through, you're burning it at high temperature. Of course, it's still very harmful but it's rather less harmful than leaving it to smoulder in an ashtray. Well, we showed that the uh, industry had known that the uh, smoldering, the smoke from smouldering cigarettes was three or four times more dangerous than directly inhaled smoke, and they'd known this for many, many years. So that, that will be a major benefit. Martin McKee on the dangers of secondhand smoke and oral tobacco, and he'll be telling us about another vice, alcohol, later in the programme. Politicians who are making health policy in the UK should be learning more from history. That's according to a leading academic at the London School. Virginia Berridge has just published an article in the Guardian newspaper and in it she says that although some politicians might claim to use the history of public health in their work, it's rare that they learn from history with any great depth and sometimes history is ignored altogether. She told me more. The point I'm trying to make is that history has a lot to give to policymakers at the moment, policymakers are using history, um, but it's a kind of folk history. It's a history that they know already, really, and uh, they're not reaching out to historians to get the benefits of a wider range of historical input and analysis. So could you give us an example of, of, of this folk history? You know, How is it that politicians are using this kind of knowledge and what could they be doing better? Well, one of the things that strikes anyone who works on, on health services is how often uh, the legacy of an Aaron Bevan is, is evoked by politicians. Nearly every change in health policy is ascribed to be something that Nye Bevan would have approved of, uh, whether he would have approved of it or not. And that's fine because he obviously did a wonderful job in creating a national health service. But there are also other aspects of um, his, the history of health systems and health services uh, which could be brought in. For example, a lot of people don't know that uh, health services uh, were once primarily located in and controlled within local government and that the medical officer of health, the public health official, uh, was the linchpin of that system. Now that was something that disappeared largely with the coming of the NHS. So what I'm saying in this article is that there are other aspects to the history of health which might be looked at because after all politicians have been trying to get the kind of integration of health and social care uh, which we did have up until the, the late 1940s but without looking at the history of how it operated in the past. You also mention um, the MMR vaccination and how um, there is actually you know, a history of opposition to vaccination. Tell me more about that. Well, one of the things that also strikes historians is sometimes uh, history just isn't mentioned at all. I mean, with the NHS, it's, it's Nye Bevan. But there are other areas of health policy where uh, history just, just doesn't get mentioned at all. And one of those has been, I think, vaccination, where the discussion around MMR has been very much in the here and now. You know, parents are misguided, um, the science is perhaps a bit dodgy and so on. 
But also, I think, to a historian, what's what's interesting about that opposition is that it's something that's really been a continuing thread going right back into the 19th century. Lots of people then were very opposed to vaccination for all sorts of reasons, for religious reasons, opposition to the coercive power of the state, and also opposition because vaccination... Uh, was something that bore more heavily on the poor and middle-class people could get out of it. Um, and all of that has been forgotten. And, and if that had been yeah. looked at at the time of this, this, the MMR vaccination, could that have helped? I think it could have perhaps helped understand why people sometimes oppose these types of interventions. Um, not because they're stupid or, you know, they're head in the sand or anything like that, but because it tells us something about kind of rather deep-seated popular fears. So what should be happening now then? Should, I mean, are there initiatives to, for us to start taking notice more of history and using it? Well, I think there are a number of different initiatives at the moment. One of the ones which our centre is involved in is the History and Policy Network, which has its own website, uh, historyandpolicy.org, which puts up um, uh, position papers using history to give perspective on, on current policy and to make points about current policy. And there are also a number of attempts, I think, by historians to to reach out to the public health field and elsewhere. Some new series in, in public health journals, there's one that I'm involved in, in the Journal of Epidemiology and Community Health called Public Health Past and Present. So I think the attitude of historians is changing and hopefully in the future also the attitude of politicians may change. After all, we are now going to have a prime minister who um, has a PhD in history. Virginia Berridge, who is the head of the Centre for History and Public Health at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Non-beverage alcohol, including such things as aftershave and firelighting fluid, is a major contributor to the short life expectancy of Russian men. That's according to a London school study published in The Lancet. In the UK, 90% of 18-year-olds will live until retirement age, but in Russia that figure is only 50%, and a research team involving the London School wanted to find out why. Previously, Mikhail Gorbachev had banned the sale of alcohol in the Soviet Union, primarily to aid productivity, but this was retrospectively linked to a rise in life expectancy among men. This trend was then reversed when the Soviet Union split up and the ban ceased to be. So the team decided to do a case control study in the Russian city of Izhevsk to try and find out whether alcohol consumption was having this effect. Here's Martin McKee again. We looked at 1,750 men who had died in a typical Russian city and we wanted to know about what had been happening to them in the time leading up to their death. So we thought very carefully, we did a lot of work to find out what sort of things we could ask their surviving relatives. Questions like how often did they have hangovers? Did they come asleep home at night drunk and uh, sleep with their clothes on? What types of thing did they drink? And so on. We got a lot of details about them, and then we looked at 1,750 otherwise similar men who were still alive, and we asked them, and in addition to asking them, we asked relatives of theirs about them, so we were able to compare the two. So what were the key findings then? Well, the key findings were actually rather a surprise to us because, like many people, we assumed that drinking vodka would be one of the uh, major factors, and of course, drinking large amounts of vodka are very harmful. But what came out of it was the widespread consumption of a number of substances that are not normally designed for drinking. These are things like aftershaves, uh, described as autocolones in, in Russian, uh, a number of alcohol-containing medicines, things like firelighting fluid and so on. We uh, 
were able to confirm that these were very easily available. You could buy them in stores and kiosks all over the place. And in fact, our other work has shown that these are widely available across Russia. They contain, in the case of the aftershaves, about 95% alcohol. Uh, they're very pure, but that is more than double the concentration of commercial vodka. They're not taxed, so they're very much cheaper. So effectively, for the same amount of alcohol, they cost about one-sixth the price of vodka. And yet they are much more dangerous. They are much more dangerous. Uh, they're being drunk by about one in 12 working-age men in the city that we looked at, and we think that that is absolutely typical of the rest of Russia. We're able to buy them everywhere we look. So, I mean, we've seen that there has been a, you know, an alcohol ban put into place in the Soviet Union. I mean, should something like this be done again? What can be done? There is a real issue in terms of enforceability of laws in Russia at present. And uh, our uh, initial evidence suggests that, 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 in fact, some things have been done. I should say that the federal government has moved uh, largely as a result of our work and has tried to restrict the sales of these aftershaves in particular. It is, of course, up to the individual city authorities to put that into practice, and we are finding that some are doing that effectively, but others are still not quite so successful. Even on the day that we uh, published our paper in The Lancet, it was reported that the federal tax authorities had clamped down on some of the manufacturers of these substances. So we do see that there is a, a clear recognition of the problem in Russia, but Russia is a very large country, and uh, there is still quite a challenge in enforcing many laws. Uh, we're just delighted that the Russian government at the centre does recognise the problem and is working to combat it. Do you anticipate this being a problem in other countries as well, for example, former Soviet republics or perhaps others as well? We know that it's a problem and uh, we have uh, previously shown that these substances are easily available in places like Ukraine and the Baltic states. We published a study last year looking at the situation in Estonia uh, where the same products were available. In that case, they were being imported from Ukraine. So this is a problem. These um, substances are traded right across the former Soviet Union. Martin McKee speaking there. And that's all for this audio news programme brought to you by the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Do keep checking for more programmes. And until next time, from me, Derek Thorne, it's goodbye.